This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, everyone. It's Meredith, one of the Women Who Travel hosts. We recorded this week's podcast, one of our quarterly FAQ episodes, a few weeks back, well before the coronavirus had become such a huge part of our lives. As Conde Nast Traveler's U.S. editor Jesse Ashlock wrote this week, it's important to remember that travel is a state of mind and that you don't necessarily have to go far away to feel far away. With that in mind, we're sharing this episode, which deals mostly with planning for summer travel with you, knowing that we could all use with some armchair travel, imagining ourselves relaxing on an island in Greece or chowing down in Lima, and knowing that we'll be able to get there IRL soon. And welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Connie Nast Traveler. I'm Meredith Carey, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Lala Arakoglu. Hello. This is, drumroll please, the 100th episode of Women Who Travel. <laughs> For our 100th episode, we are answering your burning questions in our fifth FAQ installment. Joining us are our resident advice columnist and community editor, Megan Spirell. Hi. And articles director, Stephanie Wu. Hey, guys. Thank you both for coming on. Thanks I mean, for having it's us. It's quite an honor being asked on for our 100th episode. 100th episode. Are we gonna People an- were lining up outside. <laughs> we need t-shirts or something. Are we going to answer 100 questions? I'm very nervous. Oh Let me God. tell you. Fire. People are turning off <laughs> this podcast as we speak. We can confidently say we are not answering 100 questions, but we do have some great ones from our Facebook group. A lot of the questions have to do with traveling this summer. A lot of people had questions about where to go. So the first question is kind of a combo of a bunch because a ton of people were asking about traveling to Greece. Melly and Helki, both great names, are both going to Greece at some point this summer um, and had a bunch of different questions about which city to fly into, how to go solo, what islands to visit that aren't crazy expensive. Lale, I know that you have spent quite a lot of time in Greece. What are your suggestions for these two? Go at the very beginning or the very end of the summer because Athens in July and August is scorching. When it's that hot in Athens, it's also empty because everyone who actually lives there escapes to the islands, um, which will then mean that the islands are very busy too and you might not be able to find the hotel or Airbnb that you want to stay in. So I would say go in June or um, last time I went to Greece, I went in early September. And I mean, your sport for choice with the islands. I do think that in general, there aren't that many in quotes cheap islands. You're 
you're going to be spending some money regardless of where you're staying. But I think the payoff will be worth it. And I think you can also, you know, prioritize what you think is important on your Greece trip, whether you're like, I want to experience some of Athens, which is more wallet friendly. And then maybe just do a couple of days in an island, which is actually what I did. Um, you can also hop around. I also think another alternative that's really great if you want to mix things up is you can very easily get a ferry to Turkey and experience the, as they call it, turquoise coast around there. Um, so actually when I went, I did a Turkey-Greece trip together, which I think is an amazing way to see that region because they're such different places. I'll say I did the turquoise coast instead of Greece like years ago and it was incredible because there were hardly any people there and you're on the same coastline it's gorgeous highly recommend what areas specifically of the turquoise coast are your favorites so I think Bodrum is kind of the place everyone goes you've got the actual town is like pretty touristy and oversaturated um, and you have a lot of Brits abroad um, and I can complain about that because I am British and it can get a little bit wearing, but there are lots and lots and lots of beautiful hotels and resorts along that coast. There is an addition hotel that opened, I think a year ago, that is well worth checking out. And then from there, you can hop around along the coast, but one thing that a lot of people do in that part of Turkey is actually, you can book a stay on this traditional wooden boat for a week and it will stop along different parts of the coast and you have a crew and often a chef who will cook all your food. I've got family members that have done it before. Lots of Europeans do it. It's actually like one of the best ways to see that part of the Mediterranean. Um, Highly recommend. Wow, my jaw was completely dropped during that because I did it wrong. I should have done that, that boat. That sounds amazing. I you still it, can. <laughs> I did it wrong too. I think I took an overnight train from Istanbul to Athens. That makes sense. It was very... Not, <laughs> not efficient. No, it wasn't efficient. It took <laughs> forever, but it was so cheap and I slept like a baby because the train was like actually very soothing for me and I think as a budget, you know, spring break trip when you're studying abroad, overnight trains are always a fantastic option if you are looking to travel long distances um, on a tight budget. And a brilliant way to explore Europe. I've done a bunch of overnight trains. I've done it from London on the Eurostar to Paris and then got the overnight train from Paris to Madrid. I've done London up to Inverness in Scotland. I've done the overnight train from Istanbul to Ankara. And I also agree, you wouldn't think that you'd sleep like a baby, but you kind of do. And w- w- it's so exciting. It's so romantic. Also, you can drink and then fall asleep. So it's pretty comfortable. Exactly. That's, <laughs> that, that is what I did. It's true. Um, Lolly, just going back to their specific questions, do you have any particular island? I know they're, they're all going to be expensive, but are there any you suggest that you love more than others? Um, okay. So a place that is very special to me is Hydra, um, which is about a hour and a half journey on um, the fast boat. You can either get the ferry or you can get this thing called the hydrofoil from Piraeus port, which is just on the edge of Athens. And it's where all the different boats to all the different islands go. And Hydra has no cars, it only has donkeys, which pretty much sets the scene. It's very hilly, so you can actually do hikes along the coast. But it has these beautiful pebbled beaches with this clear, 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 clear water with little cafes and bars all along it. And, you know, you spend all day on the beach and then like you 
eat your weight in Greek food and then you stagger up one of the very, very, very steep hills uh, to go back to your hotel or little Airbnb at the end of the night. And I truly think it's one of the most magical places I've ever been to. And anyone who was a Leonard Cohen fan out there, I will say that is where he used to live. He wrote a bunch of songs on there. If you like me are nerdy and you go down a trip advisor hole there's a bunch of like six-year-old men who have figured out where the house is and there are a bunch of directions that take you right there and sunset with a drink in your hand is kind of like there literally nothing beats it in hydra and then also a place that we've written about a lot in traveler and i know that a lot of people in the office were excited about a couple of summers ago was milos which I think you might have seen on Instagram at this point, people jumping off these beautiful curved white rocks. Um, it was quite quiet and I think has started to become buzzier, but definitely is a place to include on your list. Moving on very far from Greece, I want you to kind of like harken back to where you would have wanted to go when you were 17 years old because Marie has two teenagers who she wants to take on a long weekend this summer and her two initial options are New Orleans or Montreal. Which would you guys choose if you wanted to go on a trip when you were 17? I was going to say that it all depends on whether these teens have been out of the country before but I don't think it matters because New Orleans basically feels like its own country <laughs> I was gonna say it depends where they're coming from but yeah I'm I haven't been to either but New Orleans just seems like tell us more <laughs> <laughs> I mean I I would not go to New Orleans come on they're only 17 wait till they can drink so I feel like they're two different ways you can do New Orleans and I think yeah there can definitely be the case for holding that until you're 21 um, but I think something that is super fascinating and was fascinating to me when I visited that I feel like would be fascinating to teenagers you know who might not know that that's going to be fascinating is the World War II Museum because I think it is so well done and so huge and I think makes something that kids and teens might have just read about or learned about in school um, something that feels very like true to life and is a way to use your summer vacation to educate your children um, and maybe take a step out off of Bourbon Street and go see the World War II Museum. I would highly recommend doing that if you are going to New Orleans. But I also love Montreal. And I think when you're saying about, you know, have they gone out of the country yet? I think Montreal feels so European and being in a place where English is not necessarily the first language of everyone who's there can feel like you're going very far when in fact you are going just to our neighbors. So I feel like there's a case for both, which is not a helpful answer. I mean, purely from a weather point of view, I think New Orleans is too hot in the summer, but I guess that could also depend on where you're coming from. Whereas Canada is perfect in the summer. I have a very different kind of nerd sensibility from Meredith. I guess if you told me when I was 17 that you were taking me to a World War II museum, <laughs> I'd be like, no thanks, mom. <laughs> However, my nerdy um, play for Quebec City is that there is a gorgeous, gorgeous hotel there called the um, Fairmont Chateau Frontenac. And it's like on this, on top of this hilly mountain and it looks just like Hogwarts from the outside. And to me, that is where my teenage nerdy fantasy dreams would come true. And I also think both Montreal and Quebec cities are super walkable, so you don't have to worry about renting a car there unless you choose to drive between the two cities. And you get that Francophile food and culture and history. And there's a lot of nature around there, too. So that would be my vote if we're only choosing between the two places. 
I'm going to say one more thing about New Orleans, which is that, yes, Bourbon Street and all of that madness is a large part of the experience of going there. And if you're a 17-year-old, you can't participate in that. And that that sucks. <laughs> but I will also say that unless you're from some big, massive city, a lot of, I think, what you want to experience when you're 17 years old is life. You want to see things you haven't seen before and like feel that energy and feel that craziness that New Orleans gives you in a way that like very, very few cities in the US do. And I think just being able to like walk around that and kind of maybe for the first time see everything that's out there waiting for you would be an incredible experience. So Marie, take that as you will. And uh, <laughs> Sorry, we're so unhelpful. <laughs> oh, and, and go to the cemeteries. Sorry, I mean, I watched a lot of Buffy growing up. But. <laughs> I think there's like good points for both. Um, and I will agree with Steph. I went to New Orleans a couple Julys ago, and you really have to kind of plan around the air conditioning because uh, the humidity is quite atrocious. But it works. You can... You can make it work. You just may need to schedule your cemetery tours for not noon. Can I actually add something as someone who, again, has not been to either of the places? I think when you're 17, the idea of going somewhere that is so starkly contrasted to wherever you're coming from is the most exciting thing you can do. So if you guys live in a city, then maybe it's a national park. Maybe it's going to Sedona or somewhere that is just so, or even the Grand Canyon, just somewhere that feels so unlike anything they've seen. And if you're from somewhere smaller than really like any walkable city, you know, San Francisco or Seattle or New Orleans or even parts of Austin, I mean, areas that feel kind of dense and really more urban can feel really exciting. It could be kind of anywhere. So I'd use that. And I think with any teenagers, honestly, like part of the fun is letting them explore and feel empowered to kind of go off on their own for a few hours in between meals or whatever it might be. So I would pick a location where you feel comfortable letting your teenagers wander a bit and meeting up with them. And I think that just makes any family trip more enjoyable when you can split up and then come together and talk about what you've experienced. That's such a good tip. And I think, I mean, like everyone remembers being a teenager and like imagining for a few hours that you're like in this city without your parents just wandering around on your own terms so yeah I love that I know that last time Megan was on here we uh, may or may not have offended slash put a call out for 16 year old listeners and I know that we do in fact have some so if you have uh, feels on where you would like to go on family vacation, please do let us know because we know there are, in fact, teens who responded to the call who do listen to this podcast. So thank you very much. Maybe you're a teen who's been to that World War II museum. Let us know. <laughs> please. Also, we do know because someone directly emailed me and was like, hi, I'm 17, 16, and I loved it. So there we go. You know, keep letting us know who's out there. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. 
1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. But sticking on the theme of teen travel, um, we have another question from Sarah in the group who has a 14-year-old daughter to travel with and is very lucky in that she has been given five weeks paid vacation this summer, centered around July. Um, And she's trying to think of a place for the two of them to go. Now, before we started recording, when I saw that this this person has five weeks of vacation. I was like, we should just do a whole episode dedicated to planning it. I mean, you can literally go anywhere in five weeks. Must be a European company. <laughs> I think the the really nice thing that Sarah pointed out in her question, though, is that she thought it might be fun to get an apartment and just sit in one spot and really get to know that place. And I would say if you have five weeks of paid vacation and you're going with a teen who might be really excited, like Steph said, to like have that autonomy, you know, sitting in a place where they can go out and get the breakfast in the morning or do something like that and have a routine in this new place. Like I can only imagine how cool I would have felt if I was <laughs> in that, in that position. Um, so I think that's a great place to start, especially when you have such a long amount of time, you don't necessarily have to fit as many places as possible into that vacation, picking one spot and poking around there and really getting into the daily life of it would not only maybe be the more affordable option, but be a really great opportunity for your kid to get to know a new place i'd love to know steph and megan if you had five weeks to go wherever you wanted where would you go i mean okay thinking in terms of helping sarah out she mentions that she speaks a bit of spanish her daughter speaks spanish better than she does and she'd like ideally for the location to be affordable so i will say the first place that jumped to mind for me was mexico city it is close enough to the U.S. that I don't think you'll feel like you're in a completely foreign destination. However, it's a great immersion opportunity for Spanish, and you can really get a sense of city life. For me, for five weeks, I would want to be in a city. I wouldn't just want to be in a countryside and kind of like sitting on a lounge chair and reading a book for five weeks, as lovely as that sounds. Um, I would go the route of like really trying to get to know the pace of a city, um, a neighborhood, the local bakeries and coffee shops and people who are living nearby. So Mexico City jumped to mind for me. And also because you can do so many fantastic day trips or weekend trips from there, such as Puebla or Oaxaca or all the other places that we kind of rave about when we think about Mexico. Um, That's where I'd go first. But I'd have to do some thinking for where I would personally go for five weeks. I think there are also so many amazing, stunning, and relatively inexpensive Airbnb options in Mexico City that it makes it a really great opportunity if you wanted to get that one apartment and maybe book it through for the full five weeks. Like There's tons of opportunities to do that in some really great neighborhoods in Mexico City as well. I mean, cities are an easy... like. You know, you can always find something you like in cities. I think if you do want something a little more rural um, in a Spanish-speaking country, I think Guatemala is just incredible. And I went there for like 10 days a few years ago and wished I had weeks and weeks. I think you could 
go to Lake Atitlan and there are a ton of different little towns on that lake that you could spend a few days in a bunch of different ones and that could actually take up a bit of time and you would feel like you kind of saw different places without having to travel too far. And there are a lot of kind of more active things you can do like climbing different volcanoes or going out kayaking or you can, there are a bunch of different things you can do to make it feel a little more varied than sitting on a beach. Um, um, I, and I also think like if you're going the affordable route, Southeast Asia is such a wonderful place to like linger for a long time and not spend too much money. And I think in Bali, for example, the southern part of the island is super packed with tourists. And obviously it's a lot of like beach clubs and beautiful resorts that are not affordable. But there's also a northern side and kind of more of a eastern side that can be a lot quieter, but you can easily within 30 minutes to an hour get to kind of the more buzzing areas. And I think somewhere like that could be a great place that would feel safe and comfortable, but also really exciting, really stimulating. There'd be so much to do from outdoorsy things as well, like hiking volcanoes or you know, maybe you learn how to dive or go snorkeling or you're in kind of city centers and learning a bit more about the culture. I think there's a lot you could do in Southeast Asia along that route. Sticking to the Spanish speaking route for a second. I know it's really obvious, but Spain, not only is it a fantastic country, I think you have city wise, you have a bunch of options in terms of really interesting places to stay and also if you're there in July it's before the dead month of August so you won't be experiencing that kind of ghost town feeling that you do get in some European cities late summer but also you have the rest of Europe on your doorstep and so suddenly like if you the two of you are in Spain for five weeks like rent that apartment for five weeks and use it as a base to then go away to you know Lisbon for the weekend go down to the coast in Spain or you know, like go north, like go to Paris. Like, you know, it's something that when I was growing up in London, I really took for granted just having that accessibility. And so I think being able to make the most of that for five weeks, you'll see the two of you will get to experience so many different countries together, but still kind of feel rooted in the same place and get to know it at the same time. This is kind of a wild card suggestion, but if you slash your daughter slash anybody that you're traveling with is super active going to Costa Rica and maybe parking yourself at a surfing town like Nosara or Santa Teresa. Like you have these opportunities in those five weeks to basically learn an entire new skill, let alone like really improve your Spanish. And so I think parking, you know, when you're talking about rural places, parking yourself in Costa Rica on a coast in a coastal town could be a really great opportunity to be super active and maybe become a surfing pro. I think that's such a good point as well, because five weeks feels like such a luxurious amount of time that you kind of instinctively, you know, whether you're in a job or you're in school, you're like, I don't want the rigidity of normal life. But five weeks is a long time. And to have, I think, to like have some classes or some sort of goal to achieve at the end of those five weeks will focus the trip and also maybe help the two of you not get too sick of the sight of each other because... We all love our kids. We all love our parents. But like five weeks is a long time, just the two of you. Well, and also maybe that's the thing that you guys do separately. Like you're either at different levels or one of you is taking Spanish courses and one is learning how to surf. But then you get to come together at the end of however many hours you spend doing that each day and kind of share those experiences and then do the rest of the trip together. 
And I want to um, end with one note on the affordability. Don't overlook kind of like what you can do while you're traveling as well. You mentioned that you live in Seattle, and I can only imagine that July in Seattle is a super popular time to be visiting. So if you have the ability to Airbnb your home or do a home swap or anything like that, that could be a great option for saving some money on your five-week incredible-sounding vacation. Which we're all very jealous of. Exactly. <laughs> We have lots of ideas. <laughs> well, if it were me. Yeah, I'm like, take us. The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowich. Um, who should be the mayor of New York? We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So Chrissy has a question that also kind of lines up with the five-week vacation situation that Sarah has. But Chrissy is finishing her PhD, so one, congratulations. But her dream trip has always been to go to Japan and Southeast Asia. And like this is the most well thought out question I have ever seen in the group because Chrissy was planning to go to Japan and Southeast Asia and then realized that traveling in July meant that the Olympics were in Japan and it's rainy season in Southeast Asia and she's moving to the West Coast so shorter trips to Asia will soon be a little easier for her. So her question and my question to all of you is where should she go for her six to eight week trip? That's wild. She specifically was asking about traveling to Africa, Morocco, Tanzania. She's going to be on her own, but she's thinking about maybe going with some small groups. Do you guys have any suggestions on where she should stop first? Okay, so I think that you, like Mayor mentioned, have done such great thinking about this trip already. And in thinking about what would be worth that six to eight week time. We talk so often about how everybody tries to cram the entire subcontinent of Africa into one trip. And you actually have the chance to see kind of a variety of destinations that would give you a great sense of how much variety there is. So the idea of kind of starting in Morocco and then going to Tanzania and then going to Cape Town might be like totally unfathomable for 99% of the world, but if you planned it right, you maybe could do just that. If you don't want to spend your entire trip on planes, think about whether you want to focus it to maybe just the southern part of Africa and spending some time in Cape Town and Johannesburg and the Winelands and then doing kind of more naturey with Vic Falls and then tacking on a safari um, in Tanzania, which is where I went for my honeymoon, and I cannot recommend it um, greatly enough. Knowing that you have this much time, I would also think about some of the more urban destinations in Africa that you might want to spend some time in. So it's not just kind of like you're spending tons of money on these big ticket um, experiences all day long. We've been talking a lot on our team about what 
all the developments that are happening in cities in Africa and the um, additional airlift and all of the like new flight routes that kind of are making things just so much easier. So my recommendation would be to think about like, do you spend a week in Kigali and really get to know that city or are you um, spending more time in Cape Town or any of the other kind of like destinations where, again, you can get a better sense of local life and not just kind of be doing the most popular um, touristy things. And I would say, I know that you are traveling on your own, but for people who are interested in doing a road trip and feel confident to drive themselves around, doing a Southern Africa road trip, so tackling Namibia, South Africa, even Botswana, is a great way to kind of zip around. And I think you could definitely spend six to eight weeks in those three countries alone. And I would also say, you know, I know Steph mentioned going on safari for her honeymoon, but safari is one of the few places, and we've talked about this on a podcast specifically about going on safari on your own, but going on a safari, it's like the easiest way to join a group and also be by yourself because everyone else who's on that trip, yes, might be in a couple or with a family, but you're spending so much time together that it's a built-in quote unquote family or a group of friends that you can be eating with, you can be on game drives with. It's a really great way to meet people. And everyone, for the most part, even if they're on their honeymoon, is willing to talk to you and spend time with you, which I think is a really great opportunity. You know, maybe don't spend six to eight weeks doing that, but, you know, putting a couple safari opportunities in your trip would be a great way to meet people. And just to that point, I remember on that episode, Mary Holland, who writes a lot about safari for Traveller and had gone on a safari trip as a solo traveler, pointed out that because of all the incredible things that you see and experience on a safari, those shared experiences act as the like best icebreakers when you're like a solo person in a group of strangers, regardless of where they're cu- whether they're couples or not. Like if you've all got to see a bunch of lions together, like you're going to have something to talk about. And about Southeast Asia, I know it's going to be super busy. I know it's raining season. I've done two trips to Southeast Asia during the rainy season, and it by no means ruined the experience. I think it cools you down. You're already going to be sweating a lot. Think about how many times in your life you get that much time to go on vacation. And I think the Africa African destinations that everyone just described sound so incredible, so you really can't go wrong. But if you're feeling like this is the only time you'll have that much time to get around, it also won't be ruined by the rain. You'll be able to see things and as a backup. Um, it's definitely, you know, not totally off the table, I'd say. And the joy of having that much time is that if there's a few rainy days, you still have so much time. If you have six to eight weeks, where would you suggest people travel around in Southeast Asia? You can go everywhere. And that there's a lot of time. And I love the south of Vietnam. I love central Vietnam a lot. I think if you're into food, uh, you will never get bored. I think... Definitely exploring parts of Indonesia that are not Bali um, or are not the main parts of Bali are really rewarding. I also love the Philippines, and I think that is somewhere that kind of requires a lot of time because you're, if you're going to different islands, you're either taking long, slow ferries or you're having to take a bunch of puddle jumpers to different places. So I think to kind of get deep and get away from where everyone else is, you need a little time. So I think I'd suggest that. Um, I haven't been kind of to like Malaysia and Singapore, but I think those are places I would definitely check out as well. Um, And I just got back from a trip to Raja Ampat, which is in Indonesia, and it's kind of a diving paradise. My recommendation is in July, again, 
it's pretty much as hot as it gets in Southeast Asia. Look to water activities. Think about where you can theoretically be by the beach. Um, and Raja Ampat is an amazing option because it's just an archipelago where you can take a little boat and go out on little dive trips. Um, for the budget conscious, there's a ton of homestays that people do there or um, boats that people sleep on. And it's really one of those, like you want to have a week or two there to really immerse yourself fully in that kind of like underwater world. Well, and we've talked about this before, but vacations, especially ones that are this long, are some of the best times to get certified in scuba diving. So if you can, you know, park yourself for a couple weeks in a place where you can get certified, maybe the first, second, third level of diving, you know, that's a great quote unquote like productive vacation um, so you can come home with this great new skill kind of like with the surfing that we were talking about before the diving serves the same purpose okay and sort of staying on the topic of solo travel is a question and also just um, an experience that another member of the group Amy shared um, a little while ago she was saying she's in Cape Town it's hot it's beautiful she's like two weeks left of her trip and she's starting to run out of money and she's needed to post in the group because she's not having fun. And while she knows how lucky she is and she's very grateful to be having the opportunity to be traveling in somewhere as incredible as Cape Town on her own, on her own dime, she isn't having fun and she's getting lonely and is tired of making every decision for herself. And she wants to know whether anyone else, when they're traveling, especially solo, ever loses the why and starts to question why they're there in the first place and is it even worth it? I think on every solo trip, despite the fact that I do genuinely like to travel alone, every solo trip there is a moment, even if it's just a five minute one where I'm like, what the heck am I doing? I'm like, why did I decide to do this by myself? I'm tired, I'm, you know, want someone else to share this with or make a decision for me or do whatever. I'm, you know, feeling anxious about at the time because usually it comes from anxiety. But I think that, you know, when you have two weeks left, it's hard to kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. But I would just sit with that feeling. I think that that's a totally natural thing to feel. And that joy will always come back. I think the biggest thing is to just keep putting yourself out there, even if you are tired, to create new experiences because one of them will be great. And it'll kind of kickstart that joy again. And I know that takes a lot to jump over that hump, but I think that just keeping plodding along can sometimes solve that concern because as you make new memories, you're able to, even if they're walking tours or whatever it is, um, free, sitting in a coffee shop, who knows, you know, you're realizing why you're in that place in the first place. Well, then I think, you know, something that has come up on this podcast before and actually was explored in an essay we published on our website by Candice Rainey recently. It's this whole idea of solo travel being this empowering, bold thing for women to do. I think if you're a woman traveling on your own, there's a lot of pressure to like it. Like you sort of, I think, as Candice kind of talks about in her piece, that, you know, she sees herself as this like very strong person and she's a travel writer. And so she felt like she was failing herself some way, both as a as a travel writer, but then also as a feminist, by not enjoying the sort of so-called independence that comes with traveling alone. But ultimately there are no rules. Everyone is different and it's totally fine to have moments when you don't enjoy it. And my advice is actually to lean into the solo travel bit of it. 
um, even if just for a little bit, like really take that time to yourself to think about what it is that isn't bringing you joy, frankly. Um, is it kind of the pressures of, of traveling that we all feel that you feel like you need to push too much into a day and like sightsee for 12 hours? Or is it that you don't feel like you are showing off your best self on social media, right? There's a lot of stuff that we think about while we're traveling that we don't realize actually adds up to like giving us anxiety about whether we're in the right place at the right time with the right people. So kind of um, hearkening back to what Meredith was saying, think about are you like you mentioned in your question, you know, you you said you're tired of making every decision. Do you maybe look to a walking tour guide or a group trip where they take some of those decision making items off of your hands? Or is it that you are tired of eating by yourself and you maybe go and like sit at a bar and have a conversation with a bartender during a meal instead of just like sitting there with your Kindle, which I have done on so many solo trips. So really, I think you know that you have the like luxury of time and that you're not in a rush to do anything. And that's the best part of it is if you are able to kind of get to know yourself a little bit better during this time as well and better understand your own travel personality for future trips. And I think too, you know, obviously money is an issue on this particular trip and it really sucks when perhaps you have high expectations for the things you want to do and then you get there and you realize that things are a little bit more expensive or maybe you didn't budget quite right and didn't factor in a bunch of things until you get on the ground. So I would like you 15 days left of your trip. I would think about what you want to prioritize and what's important to you. And it sounds like finding community might be the thing that's most important. You can actually sign up in a lot of places. I don't want to say this confidently for Cape Town, but you can sign up for free walking tours in a lot of different cities. We actually talked about this on our episode about making your travel savings go further. Um, That's one way to do it. You know, maybe you forego a couple of the expensive meals you wanted to do, but you sign up for a cooking class instead and you meet a bunch of people that way. I also think that it's totally fine if you have 15 days to give yourself permission to do nothing and just reset for a couple of days. And it might be that you're sick of making all these decisions because you're giving yourself too many decisions to make. And it's totally fine to just like lounge around for the day, maybe not spend that much money and just like take a beat. And I also think, you know, when you're talking about community, there are groups like Meetup that if you have passions outside of travel or even within travel that you usually, I, I, the word is not exercise, but exercise when you're home, you can look for similar groups in the place that you are, especially in such an urban city like Cape Town. Like there are going to be people that share the same interests as you who might be moving meeting up at a coffee shop or something like that, which can provide an activity for you to do that just means you're meeting other people and doesn't necessarily mean you're spending money or doing any of those other things. But it might reinvigorate kind of the anxiety that comes with being on your own by making new friends and doing that sort of thing. And people that you could maybe spend time with now that you're spending two more weeks in the city that you wouldn't have met otherwise. It's a way to make a solo trip not feel so solo. Which I think that's something that's really important to remember when you're traveling alone is that a solo trip doesn't mean not seeing or socializing with anyone. You can surround yourself with people and still be traveling solo. There's no single way to do it. Doesn't mean that the solo trip doesn't count. Exactly. So I think we should end there today. Steph, if people want to find you on the internet, where can they find you? 
I'm at by Steph Wu. And Lale? At Lale Hannah. Uh, Megan, how about you? At Spirelli on Instagram. I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor. You can check out our monthly advice column on womenwhotravel.com and email your questions that you would potentially want featured in that column to womenwhotravel at cntraveler.com or reach out to Megan directly. If there's anything you ever want us to talk about on this podcast, we do an FAQ episode every quarter so you can message me or Lale any of your questions that you would like specifically answered. The hotline is open. We'll talk to you next week. Life doesn't come with an instruction manual, but the Life Kit podcast gets you pretty close. Whether we're helping you tackle life-altering questions or just your everyday pickles, we've got deeply human solutions to your deeply human problems. Listen now to the Life Kit podcast from NPR.